Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. I was reading this article about a young man whose name was Reggie. He was born into a fairly well-off family. Unfortunately, it was also a family full of bitter feuds, fragile egos, and impossible expectations. And if that sounds terrible to you, well, it's only going to get worse from there for the life of Reggie. Now, to get a little bit of a context of where Reggie is coming from, we have to know where his family came from. His great-grandfather was Cornelius. Cornelius died in the late 1800s, in 1877. And he died as the world's richest man. Imagine your great-grandfather being the world's richest man. When he died, he left his heirs the, what we would call, inflation-adjusted equivalent of something like $300 billion. Imagine that. Imagine your great-grandfather dying with a fortune of $350 billion. For those of us who are able to look back, though, we actually see that those $350 billion were mostly gone within 50 years. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, let's, let's think about this because one uh, a, a, a journalist wrote regarding this man, Cornelius Vanderbilt. If you're not familiar with the family, you might be familiar with the university. There's Vanderbilt University, named after this gentleman. There's a few other things, but one journalist wrote about Mr. Vanderbilt this. He said, the Vanderbilt case is an impressive lesson in the folly of attempting to found a family upon no better basis than the possession of money. The ruling idea of Mr. Vanderbilt's later years was to amass a huge fortune which would stand for generations as a monument to the name of Vanderbilt and make the head of the house a permanent power in American society. His goal and life dream was, we're going to amass such a huge amount of wealth that our family for generations to come will hold power within American society through the influence of money. Within 50 years, almost all of that money was gone. And in between sat three generations, the first of which did seem to have some idea of trying to carry on the family business, if you will, but subsequent generations seem to, as somebody wrote, devote themselves to pleasure regardless of expense. Now, to bring it back around to Reggie, Reggie was one of the last of the Vanderbilts to inherit a significant portion of money. On his 21st birthday, he received $12.5 million, which if you're to update it to today's dollars, would be about $350 million. So when he turned 21, he received $350 million, which made Reggie self-indulgent, lazy, and lackadaisical. Reggie had two loves, brandy and gambling, the first of which killed him at the age of 45. The other left him broke. After repaying the debts uh, uh, in his will, his wealth was basically insignificant and his descendants basically received nothing.
There's a lot of stories in the Vanderbilt family. One of them is that George Vanderbilt uh, spent six years building the 135,000 square foot Biltmore house. It had 40 master bedrooms and a full-time staff of nearly 400 people. Imagine that. This was, you know, I think 100 years ago that this house was built. It basically cost him everything. 90% of the land was sold to pay off tax debts, and now it, it sat as a tourist attraction. The point, as the New York Daily Tribune realized, was that to be rich, valued upon no better basis than the possession of money, was basically worthless. Rather than using money to build a life, their life was built around money. And we see the folly of the approach to money that so many have. One author wrote, the record shows that for society, the richer we become, the harder it is to live within our means. Abundance is harder for us to handle than scarcity. Now, let's bring it up to today's day, because the Vanderbilts might seem like an extreme example, right? Not, none of us really expects to die with $300 billion, do we? Right? Maybe somebody. <laughs> All right, if you do, let me know. All right? Nobody expects 300 billion or even 300 million, you know, or 3 million. I mean, I, I don't know what the expectations are, but that might seem like an extreme example. But the average American household adjusted for inflation has more than doubled in the last 70 years, meaning today the average American is more than twice as wealthy than the average American 70 years ago. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that it's hard for us to live within our expectations. It's hard for us to handle some of these things. For instance, consider the average size of a new home, a newly built home, after World War II in the 1940s, okay? All of these homes that are built post-World War II here in America in the late 1940s had an average of how many square feet do you think, okay? Maybe you have your own home, you know how big it is, maybe you know how big your apartment is, maybe you know about some of these things, maybe you're home shopping right now, you know about some of these things. The average size of a new home in America in the 1940s was 750 square feet. 750 square feet. In the 1950s, it went up to 950 square feet. Okay, today in America, the average, the average house size that is newly built these days across the country is 2,300 square feet, right? Here in LA, we live in a little bit more of an expensive area. It's a little bit less than that. The point is though, it's hard for us to live within our means partly because we've lost the idea of what is the point of money? What is the point of money? All right. And based on the way that our American culture is these days, most people would think the point of money is to spend it. All right? We live in a consumer society. When we have money, what do we do? 
We spend it. <laughs> we put it back into the economy. That was the whole idea. You remember the whole stimulus that happened, you know, multiple times over the last couple years? What was the point? The point was, well, we know Americans. What do Americans do when they have money? They spend it. <laughs> so let's give them more money. And there's all sorts of things about, you know, economics and stuff. We, don't, we, we won't be able to get into that. But the point is this. I want you to think about this thought that money is not the goal. Money is not the goal. Money is a tool to get to the goal. Okay? Money is not the goal in life. Money is a tool to get to the goal. Money is not your purpose in life. Money is just a tool to get to the goal. Let's think about different professions. Let's take a very simple one. Let's say you're a carpenter, right? If you're a carpenter, you need tools, right? Very basic tools might be just a simple screwdriver and a hammer, some basic tools, right? Maybe you're like, you know what? I want to do more. I want to build better. I want more tools. And now you've got some power tools, right? Now you've got some drills. You've got some power tools, saws, and things like that. You know, you're, you're, you're getting to more expensive tools, nicer tools. Maybe you're not satisfied with that. You see your neighbor over there. He's got better tools than you. You, you want to buy those better tools. Well, Having nice, fancy tools is nice. It might help you get the job done easier, but the point of the tool is to build furniture, right? That's the point. What's the goal? The goal is to build the furniture. Nobody wants a carpenter with the nicest tools that doesn't know how to make a cabinet, right? You might be impressed at first, but when you see the result, you're like, you're not a very good carpenter. I'm not coming back here. Because the point of the tool is to make the furniture, right? In fact, you don't even care what kind of tools the carpenter has if the, if the result is good, right? You may not even know or you know, have any care for what kind of tools they're using as long as the furniture that you order comes out looking great, right? The point is to get uh, the furniture to be made. Nobody is going to pay him for the number of tools he has. He will get paid based on what he does with the tools. So the tools are merely a way to get to the end result. Let's take another profession. Let's take chefs. Let's say you want to be a chef in a kitchen. You want to be cooking food. Very basic level, just have a simple knife, cutting board, you know, simple frying pan, eh, small oven. You got some basic things to cook some food, right? Maybe you go to a nicer restaurant, maybe you got somebody who has some big ambitions. They begin to put a lot of money into their equipment, right? Really fancy oven, fancy pans, and expensive knives, and all sorts of expensive ingredients. But nobody cares how fancy the knives, nobody cares how fancy the stove if the food doesn't taste good, right? In fact, some of the best food is found in these hole-in-the-wall places with just, you know, very simple things. And you eat it and you're like, wow, this is the place to go. This is the best. Nobody cares about the tools if the food doesn't come out good. 
That's the goal. That's, that's the mindset of a chef. The mindset of a chef should be, all right, I want to make better food. How can I make better food? Oh, maybe if I get this thing, I don't know anything about cooking, you know, but oh, if I get this equipment or that equipment, that might help me to make better food. That's the end goal and the end result. The same is true for Christians and our money. Having a money feels like having fancy tools. Everybody wants it. But it's only a tool to get you to the goal. The goal of the chef is to make good food. The goal of the carpenter is to make good furniture. The goal of the Christian is not to have the most money. Luke chapter 12, verse number 15 says, And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of, covetous, uh, beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, your life is not about how much money you make or have. Money is not the goal. It is simply a tool to get you to the goal. So we have got to think about, okay, if we're going to handle finances and money properly, we've got to think about then, okay, if money's not the goal, what is the goal? What is the goal? Why are we here? What is our purpose? Well, there's a lot of things that we could say, but one of my favorite verses to go to to think about, what is my goal? What is my purpose as a Christian? is found in Revelation chapter 4, verse number 11. The Bible there says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We are created for the pleasure of God. That is our goal. How do we do it? by giving God glory, giving God honor, and giving God our submission to him. And God has given us many tools to accomplish this goal. God has given us the ability to, do, to use words. We can use our words to glorify God, to honor God, to submit to God. God has given us our hands and service to glorify God, to honor God, and to submit to him. God has given us time with which we can use to glorify God, to honor God, and to submit to him. And today, as we look at finances, our finances is a tool that we can use to glorify God, to honor God, and to submit to God. So money, again, is not the, the goal. Money is not the goal it is a tool to get to the goal. So the question I want to ask this morning is, are you using your money to reach that goal? Are you using your money as a tool to accomplish the goal that God has given to you? So I want to be practical, and we're going to take a look at Acts chapter number 20 and take a look at a, a, at a few ways or ways that we can use money as a tool to bring about the end result of glorifying God, honoring God, and submitting to God. 
The first of which is that money is a tool to serve our Savior. Verse number 18 says, And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. And in verse number 19 it says, Serving the Lord. To give you a little bit of context, Paul here is in the city of Miletus. Miletus is a city on the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And from Miletus, he has sent a messenger into the city of Ephesus, and he called the elders or the pastors of the city of, of the church there in Ephesus to come to Miletus, and he spent a little bit of time with them, just as kind of a, you know what, I don't know if I'll ever see you again, but I just want to encourage you a little bit. I want to teach you a few things. And so he spent a little bit of time with them, and we have this recording here in Acts chapter number 20. The pastors of the church at Ephesus have come down to Miletus, and, and, and Paul is spending some time investing into them. And he says, to them, as he says in verse number 18, when they were come to him, he said unto them, ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I've been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord. What Paul is saying is that everything that I did was in service to God. The way he structured his life all the soul winning that he did was in service to the Lord. Paul would go from city to city preaching the gospel to places that had never heard the gospel before. All of the discipling, he would spend time with the disciples that were there, those that were saved and were learning. He would spend hours and hours and hours, days and weeks with these individuals, teaching them the word of God, teaching them the principles of the word of God. And, and he would lead some of them into ministry. He would, he would call some of them to follow him. Timothy, he called with him and, and there were others as well that he would lead into ministry all of the persecution he faced and endured we know that he was stoned in the city of lystra he was beaten and jailed in philippi we know that he was whipped and 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 stoned and and uh, nearly died many times all of it was done in service to god what paul is saying is that my service his service to the lord was all encompassing because serving god was not one of the things that paul did Serving God was the only thing that Paul did, right? Serving God was not something that he did on a Sunday morning. All day long, every single day, serving God was the only thing that Paul did. There was nothing Paul did that was not in service to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Paul's saying is, everything that I did, I structured my life around this idea of how can I glorify God, even down to when I sit down and have a bagel and orange juice for breakfast, how can I glorify God? How can I glorify God in my meals? How can I glorify God in my off days? How can I glorify God when I relax? How can I glorify God with my service, with my family, at the job? All of these things. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 gives us something a little bit practical. He says, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart. He's saying, servants, Obey your masters as they have told you to do. Not with eye service, not just like I'm going to do it when he's watching and then, oh, he's gone, you know, I can, I can slack off now. He's saying you should serve, fearing God. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. 
What he's saying is, hey, I want you to serve well. I want you to work hard. You know why I want you to work hard? Because I want you to approach your work situation as an opportunity where you're really serving me, where you're really serving the Lord. And what Paul is saying is, servants, think about this. When you are working and you are laboring, think of that as a service to God. Verse 24, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. So what Paul is getting at is he's saying, I, I was a servant and in everything I served God. In every area of my life, I did everything that I could in order to glorify God because that was the goal. The goal is to glorify God, to honor God, and to submit to him. How can I do that? I can do that in soul winning. I can do that in discipling. I can do that uh, with different things, including his finances, which brings us down to verse number 34. In verse number 34, he says, Yea, yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities. So Paul says, you know, and he was there for three years. He says, you know, when I was there with you, I was working a job to support my financial needs, all right? So when Paul was in Ephesus, he wasn't a, what we would call a full-time staff member. He actually worked a job. He actually had a job where he worked. We know that he was a tent maker, and so maybe he was making tents there in the city of Ephesus. He had a job. He said, I worked a job in order to supply my financial needs. Now, he didn't say that he did that as separately. This is something that I just do on the side, and, and when I'm here at church, that's really my ministry. Notice the word that he uses there in verse 34. Yea, yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities. He said, I did this for the Lord. I need to supply my basic needs. I need to have something. And we'll get into some of the other details in just a few moments. But the point is that money was a way in which he would serve God. He said, I am going to use my time and money to serve God. So practically speaking, we can take this down a few basic roads. First of all, by providing for my basic needs, my personal basic needs, I can serve God. I can serve God by providing for my basic personal needs. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which, which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by a Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and he says, you know what those people could do to help the ministry? You know what they could do? Stop getting involved in other people's business, get a job and buy your own food. That's what he's saying. He's saying get out there and work so that you would not be a distraction to the ministry. He's saying it was dishonoring to God that they could work, but were not, right? That's what he's saying there. So by providing for my basic needs, I can serve God. By providing for my family, I can serve God. That's another way, practically speaking, that I can use my finances in order to serve God. So my family, I'm married, I have kids, that my family, they have clothes to wear, food to eat, they have shelter, they have transportation, things like that, right? First Timothy chapter 5, verse number 8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, 
he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. What can I do in order to serve God? If, you know, I'm married, I have kids, I can support my family, right? You can support your family. Another way is by giving to the ministry. There's a lot of things that we could talk about. We could talk about ties. We could talk about uh, uh, supporting missionaries. We could talk about free will offerings. We could talk about a number of different things. But Philippians chapter 4, verse 18 says, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. He's saying this offering that you collected and sent to me in order to support Paul, the missionary, he says it was well-pleasing to God. You have served God by providing for my financial needs. So the question is, are we serving God with our finances? And are we doing it in a way that glorifies God? Because you can provide for your basic needs in a way that glorifies God, and you can provide for your needs in a way that does not glorify God. Amen? Right? Depending on the industry that you work in, right? It'd be really hard for us to glorify God if we work at a, you know, liquor producing plant, right? That'd be pretty hard to glorify God. Oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I work making, you know, I don't know, vodka or something. Wait, hold on a second. I don't know if that glorifies God. You are providing for your basic needs, but I think there's a problem there, right? So there's a way to do it in which you can glorify God right? There's a way that doesn't glorify God. When your job consumes your life so much that you have no time or energy for your family, if you're married, for your spouse, for your kids, for serving the Lord, when that's the only thing that's always preoccupied on your mind, that does not glorify God. So once again, money is not the goal. Money is a tool to get to the goal, which is to glorify God, to honor God, and to submit to him. The second tool, or the second way that money is a tool. Money is a tool to strengthen the saints. So this entire passage, as I mentioned, is about Paul. He's speaking with the elders or the pastors at Ephesus, and he begins his instruction in verse number 28. In verse number 28, he says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. He's saying, pastors, okay, care for the flock. He says then, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So he says, all right, care for the flock, watch over the flock, feed the flock. And in verse 29, he says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So he says, protect the flock. So he says, watch over the flock, feed the flock, protect the flock, right? The goal is, I want the church, I want the brethren to be strong. I want them to be built up. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of grace, uh, of his grace, which is able to build you up. So the goal that Paul had for these pastors and ultimately for the church was that the church would be healthy and strong, right? Our church, I hope that your goal is also, you know what? I want my church to be healthy and strong. I want it to be healthy and strong. And finances is a tool in which we can use to help see that our church is healthy and strong. How could he do that? Well, Paul, first of all, strengthened the church by having a pure purpose. He said, I had the right motive. I had the right heart. My heart 
was pure. In verse 18, he says, when they were come to him, he said unto them, ye know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. He says, you know, day one, when I showed up here in the city of Ephesus, you know what I was like. You know how I lived. You know how I behaved. In verse number 19, he says, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations. He's saying, you know how I was. I was humble. I was patient. I was enduring. I was loving and I was caring. And it carries all the way down through to verse number 33 when he says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. He actually closes the instruction saying, I was not covetous. He's talking about money here. Why was he talking about money? He's saying, I didn't do that for money. I was sincere and honest in my integrity. And if we're going to handle our finances correctly, understanding how to use money as a tool, you've got to have the right heart. You've got to have the right motive. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3 says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Now, if you met somebody who said, I gave away everything that I own to the poor, you would think, wow, what a generous individual. What a caring, loving individual. Isn't that what we would all think, right? We would all think that. He says, even though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, if I do not do it out of love, it profiteth me nothing. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that when we handle our finances, we should do it with the right motive. When we give, we ought to give out of love. Amen? Amen. We ought to give to God. Why? Because I love him. Why do I love him? Because he first loved me. Because he died on the cross for me. Oh, because he shed his blood so that I could be saved, so that I could be reunited. I love him. Why do I give? Because he loved me. And because he loved me, I love him in return. And my love is evidenced in, I want to give him something. I want to give him a portion, that 10% or missions or whatever it is, a free will offering. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right? God ties your money with your heart together. Your money and your heart go together. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. God says, I want you to give, and I want you to give with a cheerful heart. I want you to give with the right heart. Giving with the right motive matters. So Paul is beginning first with, I'm strengthening with the right motive. And that motive carried over into my finances. He also strengthened by painting a worthy picture. He says in verse 35, I have showed you all things. Right? Paul was somebody who was an example uh, setter. He would set the example for the believers, showing them this is what Christianity looks like. This is what you ought to do. He didn't tell them what to do. He told them what to do, and he showed them what to do. He did both of those things. He showed them how to witness. He showed them how to study the Word of God. He showed them how to be faithful. He showed them how to help others. He showed them all of these things because he had the right heart, and that included this area of finances. 
in verse 35, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. He's saying, I have showed you everything, every area of the Christian life I have participated in so that you might see what it looks like, so that you might know what does real Christianity look like. And so Paul said, that includes my finances. I showed you how I worked, how I labored, how I handled my finances, how I gave, how I did all of these things. That's why he could say in verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. He would receive the word of God, he would teach the word of God, and he would do the word of God. And that's why he could say, you should do what I do. You should do what I do because I'm doing what the Bible says. I'm setting that example for you. And that example is a powerful way for us to help others, for us to strengthen others. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 1 says, for as, teaching, or for as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many." What he's saying is, you gave to me a, an offering. That was great. That was wonderful. And that offering inspired others to give as well. It was an example. And others said, whoa, the church of Corinth is giving. I want to give as well. There was a powerful example that was set. Also, we see that he was strengthening by doing something practical. He says in verse number 35, I've showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. So he labored not just to provide for his own needs, but also to provide for the needs of others. He wanted to work so that he could say, you know what, I want to not just say, you, who has a lot of money, should support that one, who doesn't have a lot of money, both of you are faithful, serving God, trying to do what you can, but this one lacks finances. He said, I want to do the same. And so he worked a job in order to support others. But it goes beyond that in verse number 34. He says, Yea, yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. Now, when you think about Paul and you think about his team, some names should come to mind, right? You might think about somebody like Luke. You might think about somebody like Timothy. You might think about somebody like Titus. There's some other names. When you read chapter 19, verse number 20, it seems like Titus was there with him. Erastus was there with him. Gaius and Aristarchus were there with him. There might have been a few others that were there with him. So there was a team that he had, maybe five, six, seven, maybe even more, that were traveling together as a team in the ministry, preaching the gospel, establishing churches, and continuing to move on. And Paul said, I labored, I worked, not just to provide for my own needs, but to provide for the needs of of others. So there was something practical that he could do. For us as Christians, we can pray for others, we could give words of encouragement, we could do things like that. If you want to be really practical, one of the areas in which we could serve others and help them is in the area of finances. Thirdly, and lastly, the way that we see that money is a tool is money is a tool to spotlight the scriptures, to bring attention to the word of God. Because when we give, and I, I give my tithe, I give that 10%, I give to missions above and beyond that, and oftentimes when God gives me extra, then I'll give just, I'll, I'll throw something extra in there, right? 
Why do we do that? Why does the tithing Christian give that 10% to the Lord? Why does that Christian give and support missionaries? Why do we do these things? We do them because, well, we see them in the Bible. Amen? Right? People ought to look and think, why do they do that? Oh, we do that because of the Bible. You know, I got little kids. And sometimes my kids will walk up to me and say, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing that? I have to give them a reason. Now, sometimes it's just so, I just do it without even thinking. I'm like, that's a great question. Why am I doing it this way? I could do it a different way. Sometimes, though, I think, you know what? I do this because this, this, and that. And these are the reasons why. Why do we go to church? Because it's in the Bible. Why do we give, you know, our money? You know, uh, my kids, I've, I've set up this little jar system. You know, you have a spending jar. You get to spend a certain percentage of the money that she gets. She has to save a certain percentage of the money that she gets. And then there's a tithing jar. There's a jar at the very... Why do we have that? Well, because we see it in the Bible. And so what our finances can do to accomplish that goal of glorifying God and honoring God is bringing attention to the Bible. Why are you doing these things? Because of the Bible. And to remember, that's what he says in verse 35, and to remember the words of our Lord Jesus, to remember the words of what God said. And that should carry over into every area of our lives. The words that we use, the words that we don't use, the clothes that we wear, the things that we watch, the things we listen to, the places that we go, the places that we don't go, the way that we live, and the handling of our finances is a way to bring attention to God's word. And we're going to get into some practical things like debt, saving, investing, tithing, all of those sorts of things, some very practical things, uh, Lord willing, next week. But those are some areas in which we can bring attention to the Word of God. Now, why as Christians do we want to draw attention to the Word of God? It's because salvation is found in the Word of God. Amen? Uh, that's what we want to do. We want people to be saved. How can we do that? Well, let's bring attention to the Bible. Because John chapter 5 says, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Romans chapter 10. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. See, the Bible is not something that we hide. The Bible is something we want to draw attention to. And we do that not just with the words that we speak, but also with the way in which we live. Why do you live that way? Why do you give this? And why do you, you know, have all of these things? Well, because it's in the Bible. Hey, let me tell you something that's in the Bible that you need. You need to be saved <laughs> and give them attention where they need attention. Growth is also by the word of God. First Peter chapter two, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Why do we want to draw attention to the word of God? Because that's how Christians grow. That's how they get strong. That's how they learn. Oh, this is what it means to be a mature Christian. So we have to draw attention to the word of God. Now, of course, in a church service, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to preach the Word of God and draw attention to it. But in your daily living, draw attention to the Word of God. This is what we do. This is why we do it. Hey, we're going to have a family devotion together. Why? Because we want to think about the Word of God together as a family. I want you as little kids to think about God. Not just something that you do on Sunday, like you might go to tennis practice and you might go to, you know, uh, watch a Dodgers game, you know. That's just one of the things that you do. No, 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 no. Everything that we do is in service to God and we want to draw attention to the Word of God. 
fellowship with other believers is also found by the word of God. First John chapter number one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's talking about the word of God. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest unto you. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You want to have fellowship together with other believers? You got to go to the word of God. You've got to listen to the Word of God. You've got to follow the Word of God. We've got to obey the Word of God. And how we handle our finances is an opportunity for us to say, hey, look, this is what we do, and this is why we do it, because of the Bible. It also spotlights not just the contents of the Scriptures, not just what the Bible says, but the cheer that is found in the Bible. In verse number 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, let's be honest here. Every one of us loves getting presents, don't we? Right? You can be honest, because I love getting presents, right? On my birthday, I like it when people give me presents. I'm not going to say, oh, presents, oh, I got to take these presents. I'm going to say, yeah, 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 I love it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You love getting presents. We all love getting presents. But you know what the Bible says? Oh, as much of a joy it is to get something, the Bible says it is better to be able to give something. It is more blessed to be able to give. That's what he's saying. Luke chapter 14, verse 13. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the, uh, the lame, and the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. What God is saying is, whatever you do in giving to others, God is going to reward you. So be happy. Be blessed. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse number 10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. You know what he's saying? If your goal in life is money, you will never be happy, no matter how much money you have. Verse 11, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof? Save the beholding of them with their eyes. Right? Now, none of us may be in this situation. Maybe you are. But really wealthy people have things that they don't even know that they have. Right? It sits in their garage. It sits in their closet. They don't even know that they have these things. And if they do, they don't even get to use them because they're so busy making money. Just look at it and say, hey, look, that's a, that's a testament to my money. And he's saying, no, what, what's the point of all of that? Because, yes, you might think, wow, you know what? If I could just make a little bit more money, that'll be great. And then you get into a bigger house, and then all of that money gets spent every single month. And you think, boy, it'd be nice to have just a little bit more money, wouldn't it? Right? Oh, it'd be really nice if I could have a little bit more money. I could get a nicer car, buy a new car. Then you buy the new car, and you got the monthly payments. And then all of that money is spent, and you're thinking, boy, it'd be really nice if I had just a little bit more money. <laughs> What God is saying is, if your goal is money, you'll never be happy with that. You'll never be satisfied. But you know what will satisfy you? Verse number 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. You know what? 
If you work really hard today and you lie your head on your pillow, guess what? You're going to have a great night's sleep. But you know what? If you got a lot of money in the stock market and the stock market's going down, guess what? Just might keep you up at night. You know what? When I was, when I was graduating college, I graduated in 2008, okay? In 2008, things were terrible. And you know what? I had no idea. You know why? I didn't have any money. <laughs> I didn't have any money in the stock market. You know what? I didn't care whether it was going down. I didn't even know it was going down. I was trying to get a job at the time before God called me into ministry. And I, I learned one of the companies I was working for, it was a big company, was on a hiring freeze. I was like, oh, that's kind of unusual. And then I found out later, every company is on a hiring freeze. <laughs> it was like impossible to get a job. And I, I didn't have the foggiest idea as to why. You know why? I didn't have any money in the stock market. And you know what? I was still pretty happy. I was pretty happy. I just graduated. I was looking for a job, filling out applications. You know, it was a little bit stressful, but you know what? There were people that were out of their minds. Oh, we're going to lose all of our money. You know what? I didn't have a care in the world. You know what? People think, oh, if I just get a little bit more money, then I'll be so happy. Okay. Are you happy right now with the stock market going down? Does that bother you? Does that bother you? You know what? You know what the Bible is saying? Hey, money is not the goal. Because if your goal is to get more money, the stock market going down gets you farther from your goal, you'll be less happy. But if you know that money is not the goal, it's just the tool to get you to the goal, which is to what? Glorify God. Guess what? It doesn't matter how much money you have in the stock market. You might have zero dollars. You might have a million dollars. All of that money, whatever you have, if I say, you know what? That's to the glory of God. If it goes up, glory to God. There's more money there. Maybe I could use it for something. I could give it to my children. I could give it to the church. I could use it for this. I could do whatever. You know, I could do these things. If it goes down, Glory to God, I still have something, you know, whatever. The point is, if your goal is to have more money, that's the goal, oh, you're, you're going to have a tough time in life. But if your goal is to glorify God, and money is just one of the tools to get you there, you'll be much more satisfied. You'll be much happier. You'll be much more blessed. First Timothy chapter 6, verse number 8 says, And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich, this is their goal. My goal is to be rich. Not just to work hard, not just to provide needs, not just to give to others. My goal is to be rich. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in, in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierce them through with many sorrows. The pursuit of money made them sad. What made them sad was not the lack of money, it was the pursuit of money. That's why the goal cannot be money. Your goal cannot be money. Your goal in life cannot be, I just want to get more money, have a better job, buy a bigger house, have a nicer car, go on fancier vacations. That cannot be your goal. Why? Because God is saying, I want you to have the bigger blessing. 
I want you to be happy. I want you to be satisfied. Why should we handle our finances in a way that brings attention to the Bible? Because lastly, it spotlights the Christ of the scriptures. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Christianity is not just about rules. There are rules in the Bible. But those rules are rooted in the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. It's based on the relationship. So me and my wife, we have rules, okay? Some of them are not necessarily strict rules written down, but if I'm going to be late, I have a rule. I better let her know I'm going to be late. This is why, this is how long I'm going to be late. I have to let her know. That rule is there because of the relationship. Because I have a relationship, I let her know. That type of relationship necessitates that kind of rule. Now, for all of you here, I don't have that kind of relationship, and so I don't text any of you, hey, I'm going to be late at work today. I'm going to be here a little bit longer. I don't text any of you that. Why? Because I don't have that kind of relationship. I'm not married to any of you. I'm married to my wife. That relationship necessitates that rule. The kind of relationship you have necessitates the kinds of rules that you have. And the rules that we have draw attention to the person with which we have that relationship. I might be in the middle of something. I say, hold on a second, I need to text my wife that I'm going to be late, right? That rule draws attention to, I have a relationship with my wife, so I have to let her know. I might be in a conversation with you. We might be in the middle of something, but I got to break this off just for a second so I can reach out to her and let her know that. We have that relationship, and that is why we handle our finances in the way that we do. Why do we give tithes here? We're going to give, we're going to collect an offering in just a few moments. Why do we give the tithe? Because I have a relationship with God. God saved me. And it is that salvation that says, you know what? I want to give the first fruits to the Lord. I want to honor God. I want to glorify God because I love him. So once again, money is not the goal. Money is a tool to get to the goal, to glorify God, to honor Him, and to submit to Him. We can do that by serving God, by strengthening the brethren, and by drawing attention to the scriptures. How are you doing with your finances? Is God glorified in your finances? Is God honored in your finances? Are you submitting to God in your finances? That's the goal. The goal is to glorify God, to honor Him, and to submit to Him.